0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our reading this morning comes from the Old Testament from Jeremiah chapter 29, the verses 1 through 14. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiachin and the queen mother, the court officials, and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the artisans, had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elassah, son of Shaphan, and to Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It said... This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters, increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile, Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to you. To bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places I have banished you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. And our second reading comes from the New Testament, from 1 Peter chapter 1. The prophet Jeremiah sent his letter to the exiles in Babylon, and Peter writes this letter to God's elect, strangers in the world scattered throughout Asia Minor. 1 Peter 1, beginning at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, Strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the the salvation of your souls. Thus far, our reading from God's holy word. Our text this morning is... Psalm 120, Psalm 120 is the first of the songs of a sense. Hear the word of the Lord as we read our text together. I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. Save me, O Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. What will he do to you, and what more besides, O deceitful tongue? He will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows, with burning coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshach and live among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I am a man of peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, this morning we have before us the first of these Songs of ascent, Psalms 120 through 134. We don't know too much about the origin of this collection of psalms within the Psalter, except to say that it seems fairly obvious that they come from different times, different circumstances, different parts of Israel's history. But at one time, they were all collected together to form this, what you might call a mini-book or a chapter in the book of Psalms. And they've all been called the Songs of Ascent. Well, what does that refer to, that ascent? Well, it refers to the ascent up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Mount Zion, is high up. And for the pilgrims who would travel there to worship the Lord at the temple, it truly was an ascent. It was a walk up to the city of Jerusalem. And that is what these psalms were used for. The pilgrims would sing these psalms together or recite them. They would remember these psalms as they made their way up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord there at his temple. And there is this certain progression, which which helps in our understanding of that. Psalm 120, you can hear as we read it together, the the pilgrim is far away from Jerusalem. And in Psalm 121, the pilgrim is making his way. He's en route, and he's asking that the Lord would protect him. In Psalm 122, his feet are standing in the gates of Jerusalem, and so on through the the songs of ascents, until you come to the very last one, Psalm 134, which seems to be a psalm of blessing for those who minister in the temple as the pilgrims are leaving Jerusalem once again after their time there. And so that in that way as well, this collection forms a unity. And so as we come to Psalm 120 this morning, we come to the psalmist, the pilgrim, At the very beginning of his pilgrimage, he's far away from his destination and he's troubled by his circumstances. Each year, it's important to remember, not only was this psalm written by someone experiencing that, but each year the pilgrims would take the words of this psalm on their lips as they traveled. As they made that long trek to the city of God, to the temple of God, and to the fellowship with God's people that they would enjoy there. Well, Jesus Christ has come into this world, and he is our temple. We no longer make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, because Jesus Christ is our temple, and our Jerusalem is in heaven. That's what Paul says to the Galatians. The Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. Our Jerusalem is in heaven. But that's not to say that these psalms, and this psalm in particular, don't resonate with our lives today. They resonate very strongly for us. They do. As we pilgrimage to that heavenly Jerusalem, as we walk through this life, the lament of the troubled pilgrim gives expression to, to our hearts, and to our voice as we travel this long and difficult road. The psalm gives expression to our plight, our circumstances, gives expression to our hopes, to our pains, and to the purposes that God has put on our place as we travel. And so the troubled pilgrim longs for justice and peace and we together with him the troubled pilgrim longs for justice and peace and he gives expression to his difficult situation he gives expression to his certain expectation in the midst of that difficulty he speaks of his painful separation as well as his heart and his work for restoration in this world And so the troubled pilgrim longs for justice and peace. First, we'll consider his troubling situation. And that's how he begins, I call on the Lord in my distress. And he answers me. There are these well-known words from the biography of Heinrich Heinz. He's a 19th century German poet. I don't know much about the context of these words, but the words are, are famous He's famous for telling someone on his deathbed who's asking him about forgiveness and what hope of forgiveness he has and whether God will forgive him. And he says, why, of course, God will forgive me. That's his business. Of course, God will forgive me. That's his business. That's what he does. That's his job. Now, as I said, I don't know the context of that quote. I don't know if he's saying those words in the right context or not. But there is a kernel of truth there, isn't there? And that's the thread that I'd like to pick up this morning as we come to this distressing situation that the pilgrim is in. And that's this, that God has his business. God, there are things that God does. And that his word reminds us over and over and over and over and over and over and over again That God does. That God is in the business of. And what he is in the business of. We realized this morning. The covenant God. Is in the business of hearing. His people. When they call on him. Do we need to be reminded of that this morning? Sometimes we do. Sometimes we do. Need to be reminded and. That's why it's all over God's word that God hears when we call on him in our distress. Well, first we need to note that we are talking about here the covenant God. The covenant God. That's the emphasis behind Yahweh or Lord in all capital letters as it's given in verse 1 and verse 2 of your text. That's the name with which The psalmist calls upon God. That's the name that he uses for the Lord as he gives expression to his lament and the distressing situation that he's in. Now, the name of God is never used lightly. In fact, we're not to use lightly the name of God. And the name of God is never used lightly in the Bible, and particularly in the Psalms. His name is chosen carefully by the psalmists as they speak Poets always have to be very economical and efficient with the words that they use. So they have to pick just the right word. And so as the psalmist calls out to God, he calls out with just the right name of God. He calls out with his covenant, his personal name, Yahweh. Yahweh. And Yahweh is the name that God revealed to his covenant people. He revealed himself to them that they might know him as Yahweh, the Lord, the covenant God. It's the name that expresses his faithfulness. He says, I am who I am. I don't change. And so my promises are sure. That's Yahweh. That's our God. And that's the Lord that the psalmist calls upon in his lament in Psalm 120. If you call on just anyone, they may hear, they may not. If you call to God, if you call to Yahweh, the covenant God, he will hear. No matter where you are on the journey, no matter how dark that valley is, no matter how remote your location, your situation, this is always true. God hears The voices of humble pilgrims who call upon him in their distress. That's his business. Because he is then the God who hears, he is the God that you can call out to. The Spirit communicates this so strongly in this psalm. I call on the Lord in my distress and he answers me. He answers me. What adds an element of beauty to this psalm is, is the liturgical use that it had among God's people. This wasn't just one situation where one of God's children experienced this to be true. This is an experience that God's people have always had. As long as God is faithful, he answers his people. As long as he is the covenant God, we call on him in our distress And he answers us. It's not a case of just one person finding hope. This is a case of person after person, pilgrim after pilgrim, discovering the truth that when you call on the Lord in your distress, he answers you. Now, how does God answer? This is not a matter of a a yes or a no, of a sign in the clouds or a faint whisper in the wind that we are supposed to somehow hear and grasp at and and discern god's quite clear about how he answers us he answers us in his word and he answers us in his providence his word is where he reveals what is good we sang together psalm 119 the psalmist is troubled people are lying about him he's being attacked and so he goes to god's word what do you want me to do O lord It's right here. Obey me. Follow my commands, my decrees. Love God. Love your neighbor. And he also, so he reveals what is good and the way that we, we are to walk in his word. And he proves that he is good to us through his providence. He answers us as he leads our lives. Where he leads our lives is his answer. And we know that God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. So what do we do in that crisis? What do we do in that situation of distress? Well, we do what Jehoshaphat prayed in 2 Chronicles 20. This prayer, this memorable prayer. When he called out on behalf of God's people in their distress and he said to the Lord, we do not know what to do, what in particular to do, but our eyes are upon you. So what's causing this distressing situation for the Israelites, for the pilgrim in this psalm? The distress that the psalmist is speaking about here is an especially one, hard one to deal with. He is a victim of lies. He is a victim of slander. He's a victim of lies. And obviously these lies and these deceptive tongues that he's speaking about are more than just merely people who aren't telling the truth. That's not what's troubling his soul so deeply here. But these people are not telling the truth maliciously. They are attacking him. With their lies. And he is feeling that. They're putting to their tongues to work. Not in confessing God. Not in bringing glory to God. Not in building up their neighbor. But in bringing down their neighbor. And calling curses upon his God. Lies. Are brutally destructive. And terribly effective. At bringing misery upon the lives. Of the righteous. Righteous. There is almost no defense in the face of lies. The one defense that anyone has in the face of lies ultimately is the justice of God. And that's the certain expectation that the psalmist has. This pilgrim has a certain expectation of God's justice. Can you imagine what it would be like to live in a justiceless world? In a world where there actually was no justice. Do you know that many people do? Many people do, or many people we should say suppose that they do. If you live in a world without God, if you suppose, believe that you live in a world where there is no God, there is no justice. There are things that approach justice, there are attempts at justice, but everyone would have to admit that justice is not always completely carried out on this earth. That's just the reality of the world that we live in. And if you end this world above your own head, and you do not believe that there is a God above you, then you must admit that there is no justice in this world. The innocent are not always vindicated. And the net result, then, is a whole lot of victims, suffering, and pain that is ultimately meaningless. People talk about the problem of of pain and suffering with respect to God. If you take a first-year university course on philosophy, I can guarantee you that you will talk about the problem of pain and suffering. And people will often argue, how can a good God allow pain and suffering in a world? And they'll use that argument to say, since there's pain and suffering, there can be no God. But the problem with pain and suffering is not a problem for God. The real problem of pain and suffering is how do you make sense of it if there is no God? Where do you go with your pain? What do you understand through your suffering? How do you, ex- who do you expect to vindicate you from your suffering when you are unjustly accused? We believe that God is just. It's a part of who He is and that He will ultimately and at His time work final justice. He lets no sin go unpunished. He lets no falsehood, no lie Go unchecked, uncorrected. In God's world, everything will be put right. That is our confidence in this world because of our confidence in Him and who He is. He will bring judgment upon those who speak with lying lips. They may live out their lives in a lie, but God's justice extends beyond even the grave that will not protect them. When the psalmist asks, "What more will he do to you and what more besides, O oh deceitful tongue?" He will do this. He will punish you with the warrior's sharp arrows and the hottest and the with burning coals of the broom tree. He doesn't need to offer any conditions. He doesn't say, "God's going to catch up to you before you die." or God's going to get you before you can get away with this, there are no conditions. God will punish. He is a God of justice. That is what he does. The sharpest arrows and the hottest coals of punishment will find those who offend God with their lips. The punishment of God will find all of those whose sins offend the holiness of God. Really? You ask? Isn't God in the business of forgiving? Isn't that what he does? Isn't he a God of mercy and love and compassion? Doesn't he forgive sins and not punish them? Well, yes, God is a forgiving God. God. but only through the blood of Jesus Christ. That is, He is a God of forgiveness, but at the very same time, He is a God of justice. It is only when God has carried out His justice upon Jesus Christ on your behalf that you find forgiveness for your lying lips and deceitful tongue but when you find forgiveness through the blood of jesus christ when he takes god's justice upon himself on your behalf and then you most certainly have forgiveness When you find refuge in the punishment that Jesus Christ has already suffered, then you are saved from the pain and the heat of God's wrath. Yes, his blood is sufficient for you. Believe in him. And so for God's children, for the redeemed, for the pilgrims who are walking this life, this road under their Lord Jesus Christ, heading toward him on the road that he walked, living by faith, then the judgment of God is a wonderfully comforting and hopeful doctrine. It's so comforting and hopeful for all who find their refuge in God. When you seek shelter in him, he will certainly protect you. He has protected you already from the wrath of God, and he will protect you from the enemies of God who attack you. Part of his care for his people is the justice that God exerts on his enemies. And the psalmist finds deep comfort in that. That's part of the Lord's answer. He finds deep comfort in that. David, in so many psalms, found deep comfort in that. The troubled and scattered pilgrims that Peter wrote to in his letter, found comfort in that. The Christians in the time of the early church when they were relentlessly persecuted, found comfort in that. The reformers found comfort in that. The church in the Muslim world that, or that lives under dictators, find comfort in that. Wherever God's people have been unjustly oppressed, they found great comfort in the certainty of God's justice. And brothers and sisters, we can find comfort in that. Because the enemies of God are all around us. We are constantly hounded by them. And so, you can find great comfort in the justice of God. The justice that God has carried out on his son Jesus Christ to protect you. And the justice that God will carry out on his enemies to vindicate you. Along with your Lord Jesus Christ. And so the comfort of God's justice is real. It is who he is. But at the very same time, and this is so often the the struggle of life, isn't it? Yes, we find hope and comfort in him, and that's real. But the trouble and distress of life in this fallen world is also real. We cannot deny it. It is real. There may be nothing more real, or that feels more real in fact, than the pain that we experience in this life. And that is our painful separation. The pilgrim reflects on this pain in verse 5 when he says, Woe is me. Woe is me. What does that mean? Well, at times in scripture, this word woe is used to pronounce a curse on someone else. The prophets would speak woes to the the evil nations or to the people of Israel when they were unfaithful. The Lord Jesus spoke woes to the scribes and Pharisees. Sometimes it's, it's a curse upon the enemies of God. But that is not how the psalmist means it here because there's another way in which this word woe is used. And that's a softer version, not a curse, but just to say, I am troubled. Woe is me. I am troubled. Things are difficult. I am pained. I am afflicted. That's, that's what the psalmist is giving expression to. Woe is me. I am troubled. Why? Because I dwell in Meshach and in Kedar. Meshach is an area to the north. It's either in Asia Minor or due north from where Israel is in the area of modern-day Armenia between the Black and the Caspian Seas the best guess of where Meshach is, Kedar is in sort of the opposite direction. It's to the southeast in the Arabian Peninsula. And so the psalmist says, Woe to me that I dwell in Meshach, far to the north, or in Kedar, far to the south. Why these places? What's significant about them? Did, Did the psalmist actually live there? Well, probably not. They were quite far away. And certainly all the pilgrims who took these words on their lips did not live in both of these places. That's not the point. The point that the psalmist is giving expression to is that he's, he's far away and he feels it. I'm far away from Jerusalem and I feel it. I'm in Meshach. I'm in Kedar. I'm not where I belong. He's far away from Jerusalem, the city of God. He's far away from the fellowship of God's people is far away from, from the presence of God in the temple. And the result of this distance is pain. It's a painful separation. Woe to me that I dwell there in Meshach. The psalmist has a deep sense that this is not where I belong. This is not my home. Things are not are as they should be here. Things are not right when I'm here. Philosophers have often spoken about this feeling that we have just as human beings in general, this feeling of separation, this feeling of of things not being right. Everyone has this sense. Some people feel it deeply. They spoke of this as different things, existential angst, among other things, but they ultimately offer no solution. It's just part of life in this world. Well, Christians also have a name for this, this separation. And it's called life. It's called life in this sinful, broken world. But we have an answer for it. And our answer is that we know the one who is the answer for it. And so this psalm is a psalm for every pilgrim on their way to the heavenly Jerusalem who is not yet there, who live in that, that separation between what Jesus Christ has already accomplished in His death and resurrection and ascension and what He will finally accomplish on the last day of judgment. It's a psalm for all of us. I know where I'm going, but I'm not there yet. I still haven't arrived. And we do have trouble. Woe are we. We are troubled. We are troubled people. Because we have not yet arrived. At our eternal home. We are the ones that Peter wrote to. The saints scattered throughout the world. Deeply united with our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet at the very same time. Painfully separated. The separation creates a yearning, a longing within our hearts. I am content to be where you have placed me, O Lord, but I long to be with you. I'm content to be where you've placed me, O Lord, but to be with Christ, that is better by far. And so the pilgrim feels this pain. And we live in that separation. We live in in the already and the not yet. That is our life. It's a life that God has called us to. It's a life that God has called us to work in and to serve him in. And the God who is faithful has promised to be faithful to us as we make this journey. And not only has he promised to be faithful to us, But he has revealed the way that we are to walk. You see, that also makes life difficult for the pilgrim. Because his purposes conflict with the purposes of those with whom he lives. And the situation isn't unique to Meshach or Kedar. But it's a situation that all of us who are scattered about in this world find ourselves in. The pilgrim's separation does not merely mean trouble for him and distance from his help. But it means that his purposes and the purposes that God has given him in this world conflict with the very purposes of those with whom he lives. He is a man of peace, but they are for war. This isn't a general statement of, of pacifism or something like that. The psalmist is pointing out the, the very root, the core purposes that he has that are the exact opposite of of those non-pilgrims with whom he lives. The people he lives with are militantly minded. They're maliciously motivated. They've been lying about him. That's what they do. They, they go out to conquer, defeat, and destroy. A few weeks ago, we reflected on how the wisdom of this world is one that seeks its good at the expense of others. The wisdom of this world is militant. It's always putting others down in order to bolster itself up. Last week we saw in the words of our Lord Jesus Christ to his disciples how politics in this world is a game of of gaining your own advantage at the expense of others. If you move this up one level to the realm of international politics, you see a people and nations that are for war. They're always warring, always in conflict, always fighting. Now if you move it down from that, and you bring it right down to the individual, right down to our hearts... And you recognize that that impulse for war is is right there in the hearts of sinful people. Selfish, oppositional, loveless impulses that are deeply rooted in our hearts. And so does this warmongering spirit describe our time? Well, no, not on the surface. Our country is not actively or extremely actively at war we don't define our existence as at war but if you examine the hearts and the lives of our culture then you realize that we are a culture of war we are always on the offensive pursuing our agenda at the expense of others we love violence we love conquering we love those violent video games and and movies and books What are the ones that sell, the ones that appeal to that sense of violence and war that is deeply rooted within the heart of man? As a culture, we crave the hostility and the struggle of of sports and politics and life. But the pilgrim is different, completely different He's the one who knows the Lord. And so his priorities have been radically transformed. He's not a man of war. He's a man of peace. In the time of Jeremiah, God's people were far away from the temple. They were far away from Jerusalem. And so they thought they were far away from the purposes and the peace of God. But God urged his prophet to send word to them. To urge them to be a people of peace, though far away, though not where you belong, work for peace. Your peace does not begin in Jerusalem, he says. It's not something that you have to wait for. It's something you already have. It is in your hearts. And God urged them, therefore, to be people of peace and even to seek the peace of the place in which they lived. The peace of the cities in which they lived. To go to work in that foreign land and work to restore it. To work for its good. And by seeking the peace and the well-being of their home in exile, God told them they would find their own peace and well-being for their lives. Those words are very applicable for us. As we are people of peace in a culture of war. We are called to be people of peace in this culture of war, for this culture of war. That is the purpose that God has given to us, to work for peace and restoration. Yes, we will be completely at odds with our culture, but that's just the way it is. God has given us our calling. We are to seek the restoration and the well-being of our world. And this doesn't need to be a a pie-in-the-sky dream, but ought to be our daily working reality. Are you a man? Are you a woman? Are you a child of peace? Do you bring peace into your relationships? Do you bring peace into your home? Do you work for peace at work? Do you work for peace in our community? Do you see the conflicts that are arising in our province And do you work for peace there? Do you work for peace in our country? Seek the well-being and the peace of the place where you are living, God says, and you will find your own well-being. We live in a community that is for war, but we are servants of the Prince of Peace. And so Paul urges us, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body, you were called to peace. Jesus Christ has taken away our impulse for war. He's taken away our need for striving, for lording, for building each other up at the expense of others, for competing and for dominating. He has won us peace through his sacrifice on the cross. He has already won the victory for us. And he calls us to walk in that peace as we walk toward the heavenly Jerusalem, as we walk toward him, our ascended Lord, who has already gone up before us. Yes, brothers and sisters, we are pilgrims. Trouble we will have on this journey. Trouble we do have on this journey. But our plight, our hopes, Our pains, our purposes, all of them are known to the triune God. He knows them. He sees them. And in the midst of them all, he leads us ever onward by his grace, in his Son, and for his glory. Amen.